Embracing Eleanor, a response to the Baptist apology for slavery. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream, waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Her name. Her identity. Her being. A half-remembered gravestone in a Walton graveyard. Forgotten. Forgotten even by the poet's subconscious. McCartney first wrote of Daisy Hawkins. Forgotten by fans who spoke of Eleanor Bron. Forgotten by intellectuals who wrote of isolation and alienation. Forgotten by the imaginary Father Mackenzie who wipes the last traces of her from his hands after performing his meaningless, empty ritual before a God he no longer believes in and a congregation who don't turn up. Forgotten by us, as we write of an icon called Eleanor. Eleanor Rigby was born in 1895 lived in Liverpool, married Thomas Woods, and died in Walton on the 10th of October, 1940, exactly 365 days before John Winston Lennon was born. Wiping the last traces of Eleanor from our memories, young Lennon sunbathed on Eleanor's grave, forgot her, forgot her name, buried her under six feet of memories, until twenty years later she was reborn as a cipher. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream. Eleanor Rigby, the real Eleanor Rigby, is dead, buried and forgotten. Like Eleanor Beckett. Eleanor Mead. Eleanor Smith. Eleanor Lee. Eleanor Sharma. Eleanor Silver. Eleanor Rigby died and was buried along with her name. Eleanor Rigby's name picks up rice in the church where a wedding has been. Eleanor Rigby's name lives in a dream. Eleanor Rigby's name is a prostitute or a nun or possibly a prostitute and a nun. Eleanor Rigby's name is a bag lady or church warden picking up rice to tidy the churchyard, or to cook for supper, picking up rice to erase the memories of a painful marriage. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Questions. 
speculations. Does Eleanor Rigby's name have mental health issues? Eleanor Rigby's name keeps her face in a jar by the door. Is she hiding behind a mask of respectability? Or is she just too poor to have a bathroom in 1960s Liverpool? Is she hiding her loneliness? Or is her loneliness the product of the shame she's trying to hide? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? Eleanor is lonely. Excluded. We do not know why. We do not know how. Eleanor is lonely. Excluded. Eleanor is in, or on the edge of, the church. The church. Father Mackenzie writes a sermon that no one will hear, and by the end of the song, no one is saved. All of this makes Eleanor Rigby the business of the church, the business of theology. How, why, when can the church put loving arms around Eleanor? How, why, when can Eleanor be saved? How, why, when can Eleanor save the church? The church is good at apology. We have used apologetics repeatedly over the centuries to justify doctrines, doctrines which serve to maintain the balance of power, usually at someone's, Eleanor's, expense. Doctrines which are often used to define who is in and who is out, who is saved or who is damned, or sorry, Nowadays, we would probably prefer the phrase not saved to damned. This year, the Church of England is tearing itself apart over the debate on whether women can be appointed bishops. Apologetics are used by both sides to justify their own opinions, projected onto God and onto the texts they use to justify Eleanor's inclusion or exclusion, authority or servitude. We can argue about the linguistics, but the result is the same. Eleanor, some will argue, is happy to be ruled over by a male bishop. Happy, or just brought up not to question the status quo, or dream of an alternative reality. Eleanor Beckett, to whom we referred earlier, was a family slave, described in the court records of the time as an Indian Negro mulatto slave belonging to the Calverts, specifically to George Calvert, who became master of the Mount Albion plantation in the eastern United States in the year 1788. In the book Mistress of Riversdale, based on the plantation letters of George Calvert's wife, Rosalie, Eleanor is described as the slave mistress of George, mother of at least two, if not five, of his children, conveniently married off when George married Rosalie, later freed and provided for in a way that portrays George as the ideal benevolent and somewhat ahead of his times, slave owner. Nowhere in the account do we hear Eleanor's voice, Eleanor's story. Her name appears cross-referenced in other learned works on history, memory and civic culture. She exists in the records, it seems, to edify her master's memory as an apology to the forerunners of the abolition movement. Who was Eleanor Beckett? 
What was her story? The account tells us very little. We learn she was christened, but even that detail is written in inverted commas, as if to say it wasn't a real christening by a real priest in a real church. Did we, as the church, deny her even that? The brief account of Eleanor's life makes slavery out to be not so bad, a paternalistic relationship in which George Calvert clearly buffers her from the harshest of racism of the time, returning to court over and over again to attest to her freedom. But freedom granted is still one person having power over another's life, one race having power over another race. The denial of the basic human right of self-determinism the denial of the image of God. In what sense can we apologise to Eleanor Beckett? Or to Eleanor Mead? Another name, a name plucked almost at random from the annals of slavery. Her name mentioned in the history of Mary Prince, a West Indian slave, an account related by Mary herself and citing Eleanor's name merely as a case history, pointing out the dehumanising nature of slavery not so much on those who are slaves, but on the slave owners who themselves become less than human. Eleanor Mead's story is told this time as part of the campaign to end slavery. Court records and proceedings, and even more than newspaper reports of such, are never easy reading and rarely give a true picture of someone's life. For this is how we read of Eleanor Mead in the pages of the Anti-Slavery Reporter numbers 64 and 71, drawing on the accounts in the Jamaican Watchman of 29th of May and 2nd and 5th June, 1830. Eleanor is a mulatto female slave belonging to the Colchis estate in the parish of Trelawney. She dared, it seems, to have offended her mistress, a Mrs Earnshaw, described, though questioned, as a lady of humanity and delicacy. The nature of the offence is not mentioned though it is highly possible that Mrs Earnshaw was jealous of her husband's sexual relationship with, or sexual abuse of, Eleanor. Only the details of punishment in which Eleanor, mother to nine children, is stripped naked, pinned to the ground and lashed 58 times, the number is a significant detail, with a cart whip. Eleanor is then driven naked and bleeding to the Bilbo's to have her feet fastened into two loops at either end of a metal bar, a quick Google search tells me these instruments of humiliation and torture are now highly prized antiques. You can even buy them blackened and finished with beeswax. Eleanor, it seems, then escaped and made it to the Custos, a Mr Miller, and his brother, the magistrate, with her complaint that 58 lashes exceeded the 39 allowed for in law. However, a slave's testimony was not allowed as evidence in court, and she was sent back with a letter from the court requesting she be restored to her usual employment as a house servant. Eleanor is sent out to undertake hard labour in the fields, at which she refuses and is beaten again. This time Eleanor fights back and once again finds herself back in the stocks and facing 39 lashes and a month in the workhouse as punishment. She again pleads her case before the magistrate, who intervenes on the grounds that she is not yet healed enough to face 39 more lashes. 
the case ends up before the Attorney General, and though the punishment is suspended, the case against Mr Earnshaw is not substantiated, and Eleanor is returned to the custody of Mrs Earnshaw. Eleanor, who stands up for herself. Eleanor, who attempts to determine her own future. Eleanor, who appeals to a law which is utterly unjust. Eleanor, who refuses to accept injustice and harsh treatment. Eleanor, who, in some small way, and unconsciously in her part, takes her place in the story of the campaign. There seems, then, to be an entirely legitimate function for the church, for religion, in remembering. Eleanor Mead, and more Eleanor Beckett, have been forgotten. Not merely dead, but buried. Her memory wiped from the face of the earth. Her name no more than the weather-beaten scratching on a forgotten gravestone. Background for childhood sunbathers. The Church of Christ should cry their names from the rooftops. For those of you who remember our earlier work, Wisdom and Word, there are echoes here of the play between remembering and remembering. Remembering Christ remembers Christ. Remembering Christ's body remembers Christ's body. Remembering the forgotten members of Christ's body remembers the body of Christ. An apology remembers. An apology remembers. An apology looks back. Backwards. Words. An apology remembers. An apology remembers. An apology looks back. Backwards. Backwards. Seeks to justify seeks to defend, expresses regret and restores relationship, remembers the body, remembers. In forgetting the Eleanors, the body is broken. We cannot move on. We cannot walk with Eleanor. In forgetting the Eleanors, it is we who are broken. We cannot move on. We cannot walk with Eleanor. The apology heals us, restores us, allows us to move on. But I am still not sure to whom we are apologising. Eleanor Rigby died and was buried along with her name. Eleanor Beckett died and was buried along with her name. Eleanor Mead died and was buried along with her name. Eleanor Beckett is known to us through an apology, apologetic. George Calvert was a wonderful, enlightened, liberal man, his widow tells us, but she is hardly an impartial witness. Nor is Mary Prince. In Mary Prince we read, her words were dictated to Thomas Pringle, Secretary of Anti-Slavery Society, Mary Prince's history was sponsored by the Anti-Slavery Society, who won public support by detailing atrocities and portraying female slaves as pure, Christ-like victims and martyrs in one of their major organs of propaganda, the Anti-Slavery Reporter. We could then, with Feuerbach, legitimately argue 
that our remembering of the Eleanors is actually a construction based upon contemporary needs, whether our own or those through whose eyes and pens the Eleanors are filtered down to us. Claire and Tim begat Thomas Pringle, begat Mary Prince, begat Eleanor Mead. Eleanor Mead died and was buried along with her name. Eleanor Mead died and was buried underneath century layers of interpretation and forgetfulness. Eleanor Mead died and was buried along with her name. And for much of contemporary culture, that is enough. Eleanor Mead is dead, buried and forgotten. Religious faith is covered by so many layers of interpretation, we can never recover any kernel of truth from its grave. Religious faith has no place in a rational, evidence-driven society. God is a delusion. Eleanor is a delusion. There remains, though, a faithful, historically-minded remnant who believe that there is recoverable truth beneath the six feet of interpretation under which Eleanor is buried, the quest for the historical Eleanor. And if we demythologize Eleanor, if we attempt to peel off the onion skin layers from the ogre princess Eleanor, do we find truth? Do we find truth? Do we find the historical Eleanor? Or are we presented with ourselves? For Eleanor remains not dead and buried, but other. Eleanor, the other. Eleanor. Alia Eleanor. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Independent, free-spirited, beautiful. The one who annoyed the church elders with her immodest behaviour and numerous lovers. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Independent free-spirited, beautiful, one of the most powerful women in Europe, consort in France, 1137 to 1152, and England, 1154 to 1189, a queen. Eleanor of Aquitaine, independent, free-spirited, beautiful, creator of the idea of courtly love, precursor to the jury system now enshrined in British law. Eleanor of Aquitaine, independent, free-spirited, beautiful, my Eleanor, champion of women's rights, a feminist sister. Eleanor of Aquitaine, the first Eleanor, literally, Alia Eleanor, the other, Eleanor, the other, as in Simone de Beauvoir's other, the other that I want to claim as my heroine. Let's forget the part Eleanor played in the Crusades, a military leader hell-bent on destroying the Muslim infidel, or that she is usually known as mother of Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, and mother of King John of Magna Carta fame, oh, and of other sons and daughters who never ascended to the throne, rather than as a woman in her own right, Let's forget that she is all but written out of our history in favour of the popular stories of Robin Hood, the archetypal male hero. 
Let's forget that she used her beauty and power to manipulate. For the facts are but one construction of history, or in this case, her story. For how can we claim to know anything of the real Eleanor of Aquitaine? For she is dead and buried, though not I admit along with her name. For her name lives on, a figment of our imagination and a few references in the annals of history. But what do we really know of Eleanor, the other? Do we not make her in our own image, made to fit our modern ideas of equality and justice? For Eleanor of Aquitaine is lost in the mists of the past, yet is used by us as a metaphor of the other and of women's potential and possibility of equality. Read back into time, she speaks eloquently to a church where women still struggle to be heard, where their stories are deemed unimportant and their authority and leadership are still questioned however PC we pretend our Baptist bubble to be. So come, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the first Eleanor, and breathe life and fire into the church. Expose our hypocrisy and silencing of women as the other, for what it is, and claim your place as head of state and head of the church, and put our male heterosexual bishops firmly back in their place. Eleanor redefining concepts of age and beauty. Eleanor, defying boundaries of what is right and proper. Eleanor, redefining the categories of the royal court. Eleanor, who we can put on a pedestal, but never really know, for she remains Aelia Eanor, the other. And so you remember, or rather, remember. You remember the queen on her courtly pedestal, just as the poets of lyricism remembered her. For the poets, she was an ideal, a spirituality, contrasted with the baseness of all that surrounded them. Your Eleanor is all too human, a celebration of all that it is to be a woman, proud, independent, self-determining and powerful, above all powerful. A woman who provokes rebellions, a woman who controls destiny, a woman who above all controls her own destiny, as so many women have not, as Eleanor Mead and Eleanor Beckett did not, as Eleanor Rigby did not. Your Eleanor of Aquitaine is no more real than the Eleanor Rigby of Beatles fame. Your her story is not her story. Your her story is not history with a capital H. It is your story. There could have been a section here about the entirely fictional Lady Eleanor from the song by Lindisfarne, linking her with the entirely fictional Lady Wisdom, in which both fictional characters turn out to be revelations of truth. We look back, not in a quest for historical accuracy, no quest for the historical Eleanor, rather a reshaping, re-mythologising of Eleanor through modern eyes for modern concerns. Is this the face which is kept in a jar by the door? A mask which can be worn as required, removed as required, remade as required? Tragedy or comedy, heroine or villain? 
and actors make up, clowns make up, disguise, distraction, hiding reality, masking reality. Makeup applied, not by Eleanor herself, but by those who read her, research her, discover her, create her, recreate her. But what if the mask is much more recent? What if the makeup is still freshly applied? What if we can easily strip off the mask and discover the reality behind it? Consider another Eleanor, much more recent and historically accessible. Not so much the first Eleanor as a first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt, champion of the civil rights movement, an icon of second wave feminism, advocate of the United Nations, and chair of the committee that drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt, who endears herself to me even more, maybe it is the nonconformist in me, with hints of a possible lesbian relationship and other colourful affairs and public disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. Yet the famous quote we in churches often use of it being better to light a candle than it is to curse the darkness was used by Eleanor in her speech of the 10th of November, 1962. But I guess I have answered my own question. My telling of the story of the Eleanor Roosevelt of recent history is precisely that, my telling of the story, drawing out the elements that fit my personality, my beliefs, my purpose. Eleanor Roosevelt, the real Eleanor Roosevelt, lies somewhere behind my mask, behind the various historians' masks. The First Lady is every bit as made up as the First Eleanor. Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor of Aquitaine, or even after last night, Michelle Obama, or should we rechristen her Eleanor Obama? The stories are all constructions, our own pick and mix to suit the purposes of this paper, for in our postmodern world, there is no such thing as the truth. Or rather, there are many such things as truth. Like all of us, Eleanor Roosevelt is multidimensional, complex and sometimes contradictory. How can our retelling of Eleanor Roosevelt, our two-dimensional depiction using words upon a page, hope to capture or contain a three-dimensional flesh, blood and spirit human being. Even those who shared her life could not have hoped to capture Eleanor. Did her husband understand her sexuality? Was she the good wife of her mother-in-law's schemes, or the political wife holding together a sham for the sake of the public? Or both? Was she really so instrumental in the civil rights movement, the UN and second wave feminism, for she is claimed by all three, despite some obvious contradictions. For like each of us, she is a multidimensional, flesh, blood and spirit human being, whose relationships are complex and unique, as each person we encounter is complex and unique. For there is no simple reality behind each mask. There are many masks and many realities. There are many stories and traditions that ask to be honoured, 
and respected and treated seriously. There is no one Eleanor. There are many Eleanors, seen from many different perspectives, pulled together here, in a very artificial and somewhat forced manner, as a way of exploring our theological and emotional response to an apology that each of us will understand and relate to in our own different ways. Why an apology for something which we now understand only by various reconstructions of stories that have come to us over the mists of time? What are we apologising for? Is it not precisely that we in the church and the Baptist Church, in this particular case, have denied others the chance to live life in all its fullness, denied others the right to self-expression and self-determinism, denied others their own spirituality and theology, and profited from that denial, and continue to profit from that denial? And have we not also denied ourselves? the richness of the multidimensional stories of human relationships, the richness of the multidimensional understandings of our faith and our theology. For in categorising others, we have categorised ourselves and our theology, limited ourselves and all that we could be, limited the church and all it has the possibility to become, and, dare we say it, limited God. So where does our apology leave us? Where do we go from here? Is the apology just about remembrance of atrocities committed and acknowledgement of the racism and oppression that continues today? Or is it more than that? Is it not the breaking down of the categories that restrict us and limit all our lives? Is the apology not leading us towards a much bigger, more daring, risky conversation? Is apology not much wider in that it embraces the dimension of human relationships in all their complexity and contradiction? Does it not need to embrace Eleanor, the other, gender, sexuality, disability, mental illness, age, neurodiversity, race, religion, culture, and the list goes on, as does the human propensity to categorise? because embracing Eleanor implies a two-way relationship. It is not about converting Eleanor to our way of thinking, but allowing Eleanor to question and challenge us, and change who we are and how we understand our faith. Embracing Eleanor is a continual, never-ending process. It is not easy or comfortable, but it is about embracing life in all its ful fullness. This paper began with a song. This paper began... Not with Eleanor Rigby, but with the unsurnamed Eleanor of Franz Ferdinand's Eleanor Put Your Boots On, a popular beat combo, my lud. A wistful love song. Eleanor is encouraged to put those boots back on, to embrace all the possibilities that wearing boots can bring. To run in impractical high heels, to fly to a Coney Island funfair, to leap across and even under oceans. It is not the singer who can make her do all these things, 
it is not even that these are the right things to do, or the only possible things to do. They are examples, dreams, possibilities. What matters is not that Eleanor should do these ridiculous things, or even that she should embrace the statue with a dictionary, the Statue of Liberty. It is the act of putting on her boots which is the important act. It is the act of taking control of her own destiny which is the important act. It is up to her what she does with it. It is up to her what she does with it. The singer, the lover, can only offer, can only dream to be there when you land. We do not know who Eleanor is. We do not know who Eleanor was. The category of knowing is not here a meaningful quest. There were many Eleanors. There are many Eleanors. There will be, might be, could be many Eleanor-shaped possibilities. We are most emphatically not saying Eleanor does not matter. That the historical sufferings meted out to Eleanor Beckett or Eleanor Mead are mythological irrelevance, buried by more than six feet of earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, decayed into the background noise of a world that has its own problems to deal with. Get over it. It is not our place to tell Eleanor to get on with her life. It is not our place to empower Eleanor to get on with her life. If we sing Eleanor put your boots on, it is not a command, for we have no power over Eleanor. When we sing to Eleanor, we sing to ourselves. When we sing to Eleanor, we engage with her story, her stories, our stories. We might be there when she lands. We could be there when she lands. And when our possibilities cross, we celebrate our communal differences. In offering our apology, we are beginning a journey into ourselves. An apology makes no difference to Eleanor Mead or Eleanor Beckett, for they are free of the shackles of life. An apology does not change the past, but it can change the present, change relationships, change relationships. Renew relationship. And in renewed relationship, it allows us to embrace Eleanor and all her stories, whose today is built on our yesterday of slavery. And it allows us to embrace the Eleanor within ourselves. We sing to ourselves and challenge ourselves to put our boots back on. There were many Eleanors. There are many Eleanors. There will be. Might be. Could be. Many Eleanor-shaped possibilities.